Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Uh, my name's Tina, and I am an alcoholic. And I'm incredibly grateful to be here, you guys. Uh, so grateful to be here. Polly, thank you so much. And, and that's, I, I hate these panels because it seems like stump the speaker. You know what I mean? Uh, I'd rather you ask me about the concepts or something. Shoot. Uh, I've had so many aha moments. My sobriety date is the 10th day of October, 1984. Got to tell you, I had no intention of that being my sobriety date. I just crawled in here because I was broken and I needed a break. And uh, I would imagine, uh, I'll talk about two of them because I have six and a half whole minutes. Uh, My first big aha moment was uh, probably about 60 days sober. And I was uh, 20 years old when I came in here. I got sober in a little group full of uh, folks that looked like they were dead and dying. They were all 132 years old. and, uh, And I was 20. And I just wanted uh, to come in and take a break and uh, figure out how to drink until I was 132 like you guys. And then I was going to come back. And uh, somewhere around 60 days sober, what I realized, probably because y'all pointed it out to me, was the fact that I hadn't picked up a drink in almost 60 days. And um, I think what's given me goosebumps right now, so it seems like where I'm going with this right now, because I never know when I'm behind a podium, uh, is the fact that by the grace of a loving God and some really dictatorial, brutal, beastly sponsorship, uh, <laughs> following some directions that seemed to make no sense whatsoever and had no bearing to the problems going on in my life, uh, I've been afforded the opportunity to walk here with you guys for 33 and a half years. And, uh, and the thing that kicks my butt on a really regular basis is I look out where I came from And I look at where I stand today, and I wonder, like me? You know what I mean? When I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous, we had this election for our big home group at the Southwest Delano Club in Hawthorne where I got sober, and I had a couple years, and they were doing elections, and and they nominated uh, Paula Whittingham. Uh, and Terry, like some of my huge old-timers to be women's secretaries because we rotated in this meeting, and they they nominated all of these old-timers with long time sober that I stood on the shoulders of and that carried me and held me up when my knees failed to do the job, and then they nominated me, and I thought, I have two years sober, and that's a dirty trick. Y'all aren't going to nominate me. Like, I lived in my car when I came to you behind your Alano club, and you took me home, and you fed me, and you showered me, and you tried to hook me up with your sons, because y'all are sick, and, uh, <laughs> and they sent us outside after the vote, and they invited us back in, and they said, we'd like to announce our new secretary, Tina, and you gave me the keys to your Alano club, and you trusted me with the thing that saved your life, the thing that was the most precious to you. And over the course of my sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous, I have been entrusted with positions that I didn't deserve, that I wasn't qualified for, that I didn't think that I could do, and that I was certain someone else could do a way, way better job of. And you guys just continually uh, 
see more in me than I see in myself. And uh, I think that's probably the biggest aha moment for me. And the fact that at a couple of years sober, I realized that I had this incredibly new concept of a loving God that created me in his image and made me perfect. Perfect. And I never saw that in myself. Uh, And then the fact that I get to stay in here and watch that grow and see that grow in you guys. Throughout the course of this weekend, I got to tell you, I freaking hate women's conferences. I'm going to cuss one time from behind the podium just because I have to, and I normally don't, but I'm doing a lot of women's conferences this year, and and I just think, like, I want to go hang out with those bitches. And, uh, (laughs) And I think that because... It's always uncomfortable for me because I have this old idea about what women are to each other, right? And the reason truly that I hate it is because I come in here and you guys break me wide open. And I want to thank you for that, right? Like, I want to welcome those of you that stood up as new to Alcoholics Anonymous 21 days and six days and a couple days over here. God, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, you guys. Like, I uh, have had, like, the wildest ride of my life as a result of being in here with you guys. And and throughout the course of the weekend, sitting in the front row and, and turning around during the prayer and holding hands so I could watch you guys, like... This God that I didn't believe in, that I didn't think was accessible to me, that I didn't think believed in me, that I thought it was too late for me to form a relationship with, shows up in rooms like this. And when I can be still and watch you guys collectively talk to this power like it takes my breath away, you guys are phenomenal, and I'm so incredibly grateful to be here with you guys this weekend. Hi, I'm Magdalena, grateful member of Al-Anon. Emotional sobriety, because I've never been drunk, so I don't, I can't talk about that sobriety. But when I was um, younger, when I was a teenager, I used to laugh a lot. I just love laughing, and and I remember my friends would say, I'll give you a peso if you just stop laughing, (laughs) if you just stop crying, and or, I'm sorry, if you just stop talking, you just talk so much. And then as the years went by and I got sicker and sicker, I stopped talking. And my friends would say, what's wrong with you? Why don't you say anything? You know, you don't laugh anymore. I say, I have nothing to say. I just have nothing to say. And, and wouldn't say anything. And, and then I, by the grace of God, I was, as I mentioned earlier, I was guided into al and I remember, you know, just, I was at work, and, and, and I was talking with a friend at work, and, and then uh, I decided to kidnap him. You know, I would go, get in my car, I'm going to take you home, you know. <laughs> I was just laughing, and then, and then he's like, no, let me out, let me out. And, and, uh, and I just kept riding around the parking lot, and he was trying to get out, and I started just laughing and laughing and laughing, and and I, and I started thinking, man, what is this noise? What is this music coming from my stomach? It's like, what is this joy in my life? And it was a healthy joy. And, 
And then I just started laughing. I go, oh my God, thank you so much for the gift of laughter because we don't know, you know, I didn't realize when it was gone and, and I, until that moment. And, and since then, I, you know, I started living life as every day as if it was the last day of my life. And, and what can I do for my life today? What can I do to have fun? Every morning, my sponsor said, every morning, Magdalena, you get up and you say, you tell God, okay, God, what are we going to do today? And then I just do it. I just have fun. And, 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 and um, I'm not sure if that's, that was an aha moment for me. <laughs> and uh, other things that I, I always, I, I always love to have fun. I go camping a lot or camping whenever possible. Um, I go boating. And, and this past weekend, my husband is kind of, he's very serious. He just, you know, he, I'm always laughing and doing something. And he's, um, he doesn't, uh, he thinks I'm a little crazy, I guess. I don't know. But, <laughs> but we were in the car and I was, uh, and, and I, okay, another thing that I do, I don't hold myself anymore. I just say, whatever's in my mind and my heart. And, and I don't uh, try to put brakes on my life today. I, you know, if I'm not hurting somebody, I'm just going to say it. And so I was in the car with a few friends, and, and then we were playing um, uh, in YouTube. We were playing songs, and I, said, and I said to everybody in the car, it's like, this song is dedicated to my beautiful husband. And my husband's like, oh, no, what is she going to do? So we started playing uh, the song with salt and pepper. You know, what a man, what a man, what a mighty man. <laughs> and I was like, oh, gosh, you're crazy. And my husband's like, like nothing, no emotions. But I think, uh, you know, just being the person that I want to be today and not hold myself back is an everyday aha moment. I, I like the person that I have become. And one day, another thing that I have learned was an aha moment in me is that after doing my fourth and my fifth step, I felt in love with the person within me, the child in God within me. And, and I, you know, I no longer criticize. I, like I said, I just live the moment and enjoy life. Thank you. My name is still Mildred, and I'm still an alcoholic. Uh, this is part of the, these weekends I am not so fond of. Uh, it's kind of difficult to pick out something. And, uh, but I, I wish that we would... Well, no, I don't. But I think when we talk about aha moments... My inclination is to think there should be something grand and glorious and I can say, oh my God, look at my life now. The thing I'm going to talk about is significant in who I have become, who I always was but I didn't know I was. And along the way, there have been choices to make and decisions to make that I thought I could never make and that I can see in hindsight because I think we live forward but really understand backward. And so the one I want to talk about is about saying goodbye to a lover. 
That doesn't sound like a great aha moment, but it's one of the defining moments that was the fruit of a lot of work in Alcoholics Anonymous and brought me to a place where I could, for the first time that I remember, make a conscious, have the strength and the, and the God self to make a conscious decision that would move me forward in, away from a life that was a deceit. I always loved men who were rich and good-looking and <laughs> because it always seemed to me that I wasn't enough and that if I was on the arm of somebody like that and, and they cared about me, that my status in the world would be increased. And there was always somebody around, not in the convent, mind you, well... That's questionable, too, but anyway. Um, but there was always somebody, always had a man in my life. And when I was sober about seven years, uh, this man showed up. He was, he was every girl's dream. He was tall. He was just so handsome. All the women just slathered over him. And he chose me. And I chose him. And we fell in, into heat is more appropriate. <laughs> and we had a wonderful experience. We had a wonderful relationship. Wonderful to I loved being infatuated. And uh, so we were, and we had a great relationship. Where was my soul at this time? I was a good member of AA. I was sober about seven years. I had a sponsor. I was sponsoring. I had a home group. But what I hadn't done was grown into a place, like I said, I was a wuss in a sense. You know, I had a husband years ago who beat me, and I didn't know how to handle that. And I consider that an indignity to who I am as a person in my inability to stand up and do something about that. Now, I have this relationship, and something happened in his life and he changed, and I changed in response. He had some difficulty, and he, he became a person behind walls. That's the best way I can describe it. And I became a person who tried to protect him and tried to make him feel better, and this didn't work. What I'm getting at is you can't build and grow a loving relationship if you cannot dare to really tell the truth, and if you can't share who you truly are. And so what happened in that relationship, we looked good together. You know, uh, he was wealthy, and I had my stuff, and we did. We wrote, drove the right cars, we had the right clothes, and all that stuff. And one of my friends used to say, oh, she said, you look so good together, and every time she said it, I would die a little more. And the day came, you can't, you can't grow a relationship that way. And there was less and less intimacy between us, and the sex went down the tube, and we showed up together, and it was a big charade, and I couldn't leave it. So I thought... And the day came 
where we had planned, we had been together, 15, we didn't live together, but we had been partners for 15 years. We'd had two good years and then we both left emotionally and all that kind of stuff, but we stayed. And the day came where we had planned a trip to the Grand Canyon. And we were great at that. We'd go together and everything looked good on the outside. We didn't have much to talk about except, isn't that beautiful, and da-da-da-da-da. I never want to live like that again. I'm present to my life today, and that's exactly where I want to be. Whether that's here or whether that's at home, I want to be a part of that existence, and I wasn't that then. And we had planned this trip. This is a Friday now. We're going on Saturday. Everything has been planned. The first-class hotels, the, the train, the plane, rather, and everything. And that day, I knew that this was D-Day. If I went one more time, all I could hear in my soul was, if you do this one more time, you are going to die. And I didn't know what that meant. I have a better perception of it now. But at that time, I just knew that my soul was talking truth to me, and I had no idea how I was going to do this. And I drove around Toronto all day. I went to see a friend. He said, I can't help you. I wish I could. But he said, if you're going to say goodbye, there's only one way to do it, and that's to go and say goodbye. And so I finally, about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, went home, and I opened the door to my home, and uh, I thought, I can't do this. And as I said it, something carried me right to the phone. And I, I phoned his house, and his housekeeper answered, and she said, he's out on the driveway, and I'll call him. And she came back and said, he's busy, he'll be available in 10 minutes. And so I waited a few minutes, and I couldn't wait. I got in my car, I drove over. And he was on the driveway as if nothing had happened. Nothing had happened. We just weren't communicating, and we weren't friendly with each other. Our relationship was a disaster. And I just knew, I can't do this anymore. So I drove over, and he said, just wait in the family room, I'll be there. And I sat in the family room, and my life passed before me. And I heard, in about two minutes, I heard his footsteps come down the hall. And I knew that I was at a critical moment in my life. And if I moved one way, my life would go one direction. And if I moved the other way, I was going in another direction. And I knew what I had to do. And he sat down. And I don't have the right words to tell you. I sat there kind of holding my breath. And I knew he thought I was coming to make plans for the limo in the morning. And I said, I have to tell you, I came to say goodbye. And I had prepared. I had my piece of paper. And I told him, this is not your problem. Something is not right with me. 
It's not right in our relationship. This is not about blaming you. But I have to say goodbye because if I continue this, I can't grow and I absolutely have to move forward. I love you, I care about you, but this does not work. And I just saw his face flush. He was so shocked. He didn't know what to say and he said, Mildred, he said, it's all right if that's the way it has to be. I'm sure that in his soul, because he was a good man, he knew that that this had to be and I was doing the right thing. And I said, if you like, I'll take care of canceling. No, no, he said, I'll take care of all that. And with that, I got up and we said goodbye. And I thought that was going to be the hard part of this. I didn't have a clue. I got in my car and I drove about a half a block and I pulled the car over because I was crying so hard and I felt as if somebody had put a meat hook into me and pulled. And I knew that, and so I drove home and I just cried and cried and cried. I won't go into that except to say this was one of the defining moments of my life. This was a moment when God did for me what I could not do for myself. This was the beginning of a stripping of the falseness in my life because I had lived in a way where I did not tell the truth. I didn't know how to do that. And this was a beginning of a new way of life for me. And I remember, you know, the pain that followed that. That man just died. We we did not have subsequent conversations. Trust me when I say that probably was wise. We were two people behind two sets of walls. We just couldn't, couldn't do life. There was nothing much more to say. But what I know is he grew into a loving being, and so did I. And after, as he passed, and after he died, I realized he really was the love of my life. And through that whole process, I realized He came into my life for a purpose as I came into his life for a purpose. And I don't know if you can see this, but for me, it's one of the great aha moments. Thank you. Hi, I'm Astrid. I'm an alcoholic. Um, It wasn't hard for me, and it's not hard for me to answer this question When I got sober, somebody handed me this tape of this guy named and he said, the alcoholism isn't in the liquid, it's in your mind. And I'm going to be the same woman drunk as I am sober unless I get rid of the self. And then I read in Emmett Fox's Sermon on the Mount that the only thing that's going to change a woman or a man's character is prayer. So... If I want to change what's wrong inside of me, I have to pray. And like Emmett Fox says, I have to pray with intention. And in the beginning, I was on my knees so many times a day because my mind was killing me. My mind would tell me, 
You lost your kid. You're a hooker. Everybody hates you. You have hepatitis C. You're never going to make it. You're never going to, you're going to live in a rehab forever. And I would just get on my knees and I would say, please, God, protect me from my mind. Protect me from my mind. And I was able to just start watching that my mind is sick and I could see it. And I had this huge realization of if I'm looking at my mind, then who's looking at it? And who's the chatterbox that can't shut up, that continues to tell me these negative stories over and over? And as I pray, and I pray, and I pray, and I pray these things out of my system, I start to have a fourth dimensional experience where I become the watcher for my life. And I become truly, truly free, like huge moments of enlightenment where nothing matters. I'm not attached to my story. I'm not attached to my past. I'm not attached to what you think about me. And I can see that it's a complete illusion. And it's not an egoic, conscious thing. It's a heart, mind, feeling, visceral, experiential thing of you almost want to just scream at the mountaintops and tell everyone, just start praying. You won't believe it. It's the best hit of ever hold it in you know take another hit and then I start to look at the print in the 12 and 12 and in the big book and it's all encrypted in there it's been in there the whole time it says we must be rid of the self or it kills us I'm like where the heck did that come from you know it says in step one we lay hold of AA principles with all the fervor with which a drowning woman seizes a life preserver and I'm like yeah I'm holding on to the present moment with God all day long that any life run on self can hardly be a success and I'm like where did this come from I just I don't ever remember reading it like that the book was so boring and it was so stupid and it was written so long ago by a bunch of men scratching their scrotums with gray hair sitting somewhere with a golf club or something I couldn't relate to any of this it just seemed so dry and all of a sudden everything like Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz it just became really vibrant and full of color and I remember feeling things like you don't have to take a class on compassion or forgiveness or love Dorothy, it was in there the whole time. All I needed to do was relieve myself from the bondage of self, and the wiring for God was in me like a small child the whole time, but there were all these bricks and heavy things weighing it down. So all I needed to do was just have a spiritual whoop adjustment and knock the ego out of the driver's seat so that God could control and this internal pedal of just turn it over. I used to think, turn what over? You know, like a pancake, like turn it over. But it's a real internal mechanism that begins to happen of turn it over, slam the brakes on, don't touch it, uh, 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 hot button, whatever it is, stand back. Your life is about to internally explode. And I practice and I practice and I practice that backing down, backing down, shutting my mouth, don't touch that. Especially core wounds like my mother, my family, Thanksgiving, Christmas, those kinds of things. Seeing caller ID of any family member, ah, I can feel my cells begin to react instead of respond. I don't know how to answer the phone to a family member. And I learned how to just pray 
and how to get still and how to hit my knees and how to pray and get still and hit my knees. You know, and it's interesting because I think everybody's relationship with God is very unique. But for me, there's something really weird about still getting on my knees and putting my head on the floor. And the longer I put my head on the floor, I don't even know if maybe it's blood flow. I don't know what it is. But the longer I'm down there, the ego hates it. They're like, what are we doing on the floor? Oh, God, isn't that a pubic hair? You know, what is that? (laughs) I think there's a sock under the bed. It just doesn't like it down there. And it has to, it has to surrender down there. It just has to get on the floor. I mean, I've gotten on the floor in the most peculiar places. Get on the floor and just continue to practice the art of surrender. And in that place, I've been given so much because what I didn't realize is that inside of the heart-mind is this unbelievable infinite wealth of wisdom and I start to know how to handle situations that used to baffle me and I start to be intuitively guided and I live through inspiration and enthusiasm instead of the ego mind of I need to figure this out and if she did this then I'm going to do that and I've got a scorecard and oh hell no two against one I've got a baseball bat for you and all of that began to just chisel away and go And I had a completely different set of tools. And the set of tools was, I don't know. And I don't need to know. I don't know. I don't know anything. And in falling in love with the I don't know-ness, I get to be connected to everything, to all the infinite possibilities. Because the minute my ego comes back and I have an agenda, it's very narrow. I have an agenda, it's telling me what to do, we got the steering wheel, we got to get over here, and I can feel my heart get sick again, and I learn how to live in my chest and out of here, like literally, when my heart feels sick and my stomach feels sick, I'm in untreated alcoholism, I'm not well spiritually, I'm sick, I don't need liquor, just piss me off, you know, that's it, and I'm drinking my own Kool-Aid, you're not doing anything to me, I'm doing it to myself again. The self is doing it to the self again, and the self has downloaded. And, you know, I think to myself, sometimes I think, God, if I could, like, go to UCLA and, like, have the ego surgically removed, I don't even care how much it would cost. I would. If I could just stay in a state of enlightenment, but I can't. You know, I I can spiritually brag for a moment. I know exactly what enlightenment feels like when the wind is just blowing right through you and nothing bothers me. But because I'm human and I'm like, you know, monkey mind, my wings get snipped, I get slammed in the dirt one more time, I get in traffic or somebody in the line bothers me or somebody misunderstanding me, that's really, the ego hates it. I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. Excuse me, I'm going to tell you who I really am. That's my trigger. And when I see that, I'm like, oh, no, girly. You stay down in the basement with your two-foot chain, no water, no kibble, just shut up down there. I need to have a clean life. And this place that I try to live in takes a tremendous amount of internal practice. If you think I got this thing just because I can verbalize it, oh, my gosh. As the years go by in recovery, I have more and more fruits. My... My business and my private practice has exploded. The amount of clients, the amount of money, 
my daughter's success, my relationships. Everything's bigger. Everything's bigger and there's more out there in the fourth dimension. There's more to manage. There's more to make me mad. There's more to frustrate me. There's more things to trip over. In the beginning, I just had like a cell phone and a mattress on the floor and a little rental and a nothing. I ate out of a toaster oven, you know. Now it's like four burners, two bath, two bed, you know, parking structure, whatever. Just more and more and more. And I see that even though I try to live a minimal life, the more stuff that gets added is just the more things to manage, the more things to get triggered with. And in the end, this step two, that I continue to come to believe that a power is going to restore me and restore me and restore me and restore me and continue to restore me to sanity, to a sound mind, to quietness, to chill, to a life I don't have to think and I don't have to drink. The ego doesn't like that. I'm a thinker. I'm a big thinker. I have a high IQ. We need to figure things out. It just doesn't want to die. It's not going to go down without a fight. It's going to kick and scream and throw a fit all the time. And I have to stay one step ahead of it and babysit. No, no, no. Not you. Not now. I said no. We're going to stay right here, right now, and not be addicted to our opinions, and not be addicted to our triggers, and not be addicted to what you think we should be doing or how it should go. That's where the freedom is for me. That's where the juice is. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous gave me. And I got it so early. Like, I was one of those pink clouders. And then the real pink cloud people said, hold on to it. Don't listen to anybody about that stuff that it'll go away. It never has to go away. And I just kept drinking the Kool-Aid. It never has to go away. It doesn't have to go away. You can have it 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. I can be joyful. I can be free. I can live in a state of freedom for the rest of my life if I just stay in the present moment, babysitting my mind, and don't let untreated alcoholism take me out with a baseball bat or a crowbar, Tanya Harding style. I don't want to go that way. I want a good life. And if I want a good life, I've got to practice the principles in all of my affairs. Thanks. I'm always worried. I'm always worried about touching Lee's microphone. Uh, hi, y'all. My name's Jennifer, and I'm an alcoholic. I haven't kept sober since December 5th of '92, and that's my miracle. And um, and uh, oh God, I mean, like coconuts fall out of the sky all the time and hit me in the head, but. Um, the one that came to mind just a second ago was, was when, I, um, when I did step two for the very first time. Um, I didn't know where to start. Growing up, I wanted to be a minister. I had me some Jesus and, um, and some attention, and I liked both of those a lot, and so I thought, you know, the ministry would be the f- perfect place for me um, because I could get that warm, fuzzy, kumbaya feeling, and people would look at me and listen to me all the time. How delightful would that be? And, um, and then I found, and, and then I found alcohol. I didn't need, I didn't need God once I found alcohol because it filled in the places where Jesus wore off. Jesus wore off about Tuesday, you know, <laughs> and I'd get my twitch back and, um, and I began to drink and, 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 and drinking did those things for me that I couldn't do for myself. And, um. And then I come back to, I come to a place where um, I'm dying one day at a time. And I walk into AA, and you're prescribing God. 
And he is so, so, so disappointed in me that I don't know what to do. I mean, I understand as I listen to you talk about your God. But you see, I was with special girl. Talk about an ego. Good God. I'm walking around going, well, you know, God can barely function. He is so disappointed with Jennifer Huddleston. <laughs> and, um, and so my sponsor said, we're going to choose your own conception of God. And, and I, you know, the, the second step for me was, was baffling in its simplicity. I mean, that's what's so difficult about it. Is it. It's like it can't be that easy. Like, are you willing to be willing to possibly believe there might be? You're on your way. You know, and that's, there's no way that's really what we're doing. And so, and so I, um, you know, suddenly after years of drunken whoring, I decide that um, when they tell me I can choose my own conception of God, I'm like, that's, that can't be right. So I went to go see a minister to say, listen to what the alcoholics are saying. (laughs) They're saying you can do this, but we both know that there's already, you know. And he's like, I I think there's a God who wants a relationship with you so desperately that we can start anywhere. If you'll just do what they told you to do. He gave me permission to take the second step. And I thought, well, he's wrong. And so I started reading that book I grew up with. I started at Genesis. I'm new sober. I'm twitchy. Trying to read the Bible from the beginning to the end. I didn't make it to the ark. And so I failed at that, so I signed up for a world's religion class. I did this. This really is true. I didn't have time to take the class, but I bought the book. <laughs> and what I decided was that I would take the idea of all the gods that had made it in the book, and I would morph together my favorite qualities. I would make mega god. And, and that melted my brain, too. And in desperation, because I had to meet my sponsor in about two days, I finally did what she told me to do. And what she had told me to do is, if you don't know where to start, talk to the members of Alcoholics Anonymous and ask them about the God of their understanding. And they'll let you borrow some ideas. And that, gosh, are you kidding me? These people are totally brain damaged. <laughs> So I went to this guy that went to my home group. His name was Crazy Ray, because if you're going to go get advice in AA, look for somebody with crazy in their name. (laughs) And Crazy Ray, I knew he knew about God, because at one point he did a lot of acid and he thought he was God. And um, (laughs) he literally had gathered up 12 female apostles. And um, (laughs) I admired that. And... um, his cult kind of died right away, but um, he's a real country guy, he, and he talked in really s- simple terms, and, uh, and I asked him about God, and he said, oh, I love talking about God. I love talking about God. I believe there's a God, and I'm going to cry. Um, I believe there's a God where nothing you can ever do will make him love you any less, and nothing you can ever do will make him love you any more. And it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. 
Now, I didn't add it to my second step. <laughs> because that was too much. There was no way that that was possible. There was no way that that was possible. But I remembered it. And I wrote it in the front of my big book. And I worked the 12 steps. And I reached a spot where I discovered that there's a God where nothing you can ever do will make him love you any less and nothing you can ever do will make him love you anymore. And then I reached a point in sobriety where I was really invested in being broken and I forgot that. And I would sit around with my best friend and we would cry because we had no self-esteem. What are we doing? I don't know. And, uh, and I reached that point again where I'm back in charge and I know better than God. And, and I had this obnoxious friend who was reading outside literature and she read this book. And I'm not even going to tell you what the book was. It doesn't matter what the book was. When God wants to get you, it could be the phone book. <laughs> but she had this book and she wouldn't shut up. You got one of those friends. You've got to read this book. It will change your life. You've got to read this book. It's amazing. It's miraculous. And, and just to shut her up. Like my sister was a Jesus freak and she was giving me books all the time. I never read any of them. I just read the titles and put them on the bookshelf. But this lady was in AA and she wouldn't shut up about this dumb book. And I'm reading this dumb book and I'm, it's horrible. It's horrible. I hate it. It's awful. And I'm almost done with the book, and I'm sitting in the backyard, and I have another awakening. And, um, and the awakening is that, <laughs> that I am inexplicably and unconditionally loved against my better judgment. God seems to love me anyway. And I'd like to tell you that the skies opened up and the angels sang, and I said, fine, I'm yours. But it was a little more like, all right, whatever. <laughs> I don't think it's a good idea, but fine, you know. And, um, and nothing in my life changed, but everything in my life changed because I began to look at a world where God loved me unconditionally. And every time that I feel like I just can't go on, God sends me these love notes, and they're you. And I am so grateful that every now and then I get the gift that I get to deliver a love note to you. And that is that there's a God where nothing you can ever do will make him love you any less and nothing you can ever do will make him love you any more. Hi, I'm George. I'm an alcoholic. So I've had a lot of aha moments throughout my sobriety, but I think the biggest one came, um, I talked a little bit about it earlier, um, when I was, had double-digit sobriety, I was in a marriage to a man I shouldn't have been on a second date with. Um, not his fault, I just saw every red flag I painted green and said, this is fine, this is fine, and I had done that. Um, my mom passed away, and with double-digit sobriety, my world became really small, and I wasn't willing to do all the stuff I was willing to do when I was new. And I was deeply depressed. And um, I started volunteering at the Midnight Mission, which I'd been volunteering there on holidays since I got sober. I was doing that and barely getting out to meetings, but I was trying to get through the steps again and beef up my program. But at that point, I wasn't working, and I knew I needed to work. But I had no passion, nothing. Everything was gone. 
I did not know if I wanted to be a grocery checker or a brain surgeon. I had nothing. And so my sponsor said, just say yes to the universe. <laughs> so I'm like, whatever. So I start looking for work, and somebody said, they're doing the 2010 census. Why don't you sign up for that? It's like $18 an hour. And I'm like, oh, neat. So... I said yes, and so in 2009, I'm walking door to door with this little handheld computer that I had to learn how to operate. I'm not, I'm very technically special. So I had to learn how to work that and then walk door to door asking strangers invasive questions about their lives and read a map, which I don't read maps, so I was lost quite a bit, but that's not important right now. So I was doing that. Then another friend of mine, um, her company created InStyler which is this fabulous hair tool. But anyway, and they sold like 3500 on eBay. And so she needed somebody to go into, each person who bought one of these things, go into their account and leave feedback. So I had to write, great transaction, thanks, log out, log back into the next account, the great transaction, thanks, 3500 times, and she paid me $20 an hour. So, you know, I'm really feeling this is, this saying yes to the universe thing is going so well. And... Um, <laughs> Next thing that happens, there's this woman in um, my home group who is diagnosed with cancer, and I keep asking her husband, is there anything I can do? Is there anything I can do? And he says, no, 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 no. Finally, he goes, yes. I've got about 100 people's schedules I need to coordinate to help take care of Jane while I work, because had, they had to keep the insurance up. So I need people to come babysit during the day, get her to doctor's appointments, bring dinner on different nights. I have all these people's names and information, and here's a calendar. Can you put together a website? I'm like, my VCR is blinking on midnight, but okay, <laughs> I'm going to build a website. So I'm saying yes to the universe because just like I always do, I go, okay, fine, I'll take your direction. And when it doesn't work, I'll show you. So I'm saying yes to the universe. And so I go on Google. I learn how to make a website. So I create this website and manage Jane's care until she died. So part of my third step practice is that when I'm asked to do something, not just in AA, anytime, anywhere. If I'm asked to do something and my calendar's open, I say yes, whether I want to or not. It's hokey, but I feel like it's God keeping my calendar. Because if I do what I want to do, I lay in bed and watch reruns of Law and & Order and Sex in the City. Very small life. So instead, when I'm asked to do something, if my calendar's open, I say yes. So I get a call, or not a call, an, uh, a Facebook invite from a former boss uh, who I work for, I used to work at HBO, and, and so he works in production, crazy schedule, but on the side, he plays music, and he's having a jam at the Roxy in Hollywood. I'm like, no! So I look at my calendar, hoping I have plans, and it's wide open, so I'm like, yes, I will attend. And so I drive to Hollywood by myself. You know, I'm in just the pits of this horrible depression at this time. I'm just like, I have no friends. I'm going to Hollywood alone. I hate my life. But I said yes, so I show up. And the, it was great. It's always great. The things that I, it's like, if I don't want to do it, I, I know right away that that's, I'm going to feel better after I do it, even better the less I want to do it. So, great night. I, I see him, and I always adored him. I'm like, oh, you know, it's so great. So, in the meantime, all of these things are going on, and I'm, I'm volunteering at the Midnight Mission, and I'm really falling in love with this place. And um, so, suddenly out of nowhere, the Midnight Mission says, we have a position available and we'd like you to interview for it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I had not applied for a job there. I was applying for jobs everywhere. And so I go in for this interview 
and I'm thinking I'm going to start at the bottom, it's fine, I'm going to answer phones, I'm going to make copies, I'm fine with that because I really love this place and it's something where suddenly I was feeling a passion for something. So I go into the interview and they say, okay, well, we have some questions we need to ask you. How are you at learning new technology? And I said, well, actually, I just worked for the census and I had to uh, work these little handheld computers. I had to learn how to do that. And they go, okay, excellent. Um, do you, uh, we, part of your job would be managing our website. Do you have any experience managing a website? And I'm like, uh-huh, uh, I just built this website, managed this website, da-da-da, and they're like, oh, wonderful. Now, oftentimes, we get donations that we sell on eBay. Um, <laughs> this is a true story. And so they said, we often get donations uh, we sell on eBay. Do you have any experience with eBay? And I go, uh, uh-huh, a whole lot. <laughs> a lot of, yeah, I know eBay. And they're like, this is wonderful. We really want to hire you for this public affairs position. Um, I'm like, great. And they're like, there's just one last thing is that um, on your recommendations, or your re uh, referrals, those things, references, um, I have friends and I have coworkers, but I don't know any of my former bosses. I haven't been in touch with them in years, except for the one that I just said yes to seeing at the Roxy which is just crazy, right? So I call him. He works in production, which means he works 12, 16 hours a day. At the best of times, he's not going to get back to you for a while. But because I had just shown up for him by myself at the Roxy, <laughs> um, I called him, and he called me right back, and I said, is there any way you can make this call for me? And so he called and gave me a great reference, and I got hired there, and now I've been an employee there for eight years. And it has changed my life. It is... That job, I use everything I have every single day. I leave everything out on the field. That's a sports term. I'm not a sports person, but I think it applies here. Um, <laughs> I work with numbers, words. I do all of that. I get to be creative. I work with music and art. I get to directly communicate with our homeless community. And now I run a team, and I never had kids, but I have this incredible staff that I feel like... Um, I get to be the, uh, this, it, they're my family, they're my work family, and everything I have gets used every single day, all because I said yes to the universe. There is no right or wrong answer. Mine is just each day to get up and say yes to what I'm asked to do, and then God shows me where I need to be. I don't need to figure it out. Candace, holic. So, aha moment. The first uh, was when I realized that I was not broken beyond repair. That was the first aha moment, and that was tremendous. And it came when I did my fifth step. So I'm reading my fifth step, and it was several hours long, and my sponsor shares back with me. And that's the power. I believe when you do a fifth step, or when you do an inventory, it qualifies you to hear an inventory. And when she began to share back with me, you know, I've learned over the years when I'm listening to someone read their inventory that it's important that I meet them where they're at. 
And so if you've never had the sordid past and I'm going to find something that's midway, well, I have like a deep, wicked past, and I didn't know that she did too. And so she began to share, like, I mean, she kind of went one up on me, you know what I mean? And I was a little appalled, quite frankly. And so I remember just, it was judgment, but it was gone so quickly. And I just thought to myself, if she can participate in what she just shared with me, and she now lives like this, I can stay here. I can stay here. And when I was done with that inventory, I did not feel this freedom and the wind blew through me. That came in nine. But what happened is when I walked into the next meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, my shoulders were a bit more squared. And I felt a sense of belonging. I really understood the term I earned my seat. I knew that I was no worse and no better. The other aha moment is... um, We want to be diplomatic. I am a lady now. So I um, have a a relaxation instrument. And... (laughs) Because I'm a happier person when I'm relaxed. And so, um, anyway... So anyway, it broke. I don't know what was going on, but it broke. And I (laughs) was very upset. So... I said, well, I had to speak that night, and so I called the store, and they were open late, and I said, okay, when I'm done with my talk, I'm going to go to the store so that I can relax before bed. And uh, I went into the store, and they were playing music, so I thought, you know, let me see if I want to add to my repertoire of instruments. And... They were playing music in the store, and then at some point, I don't know if it was someone's personal tape or what it was, but it started playing a gospel song. And I heard it. And I guess a few other people did too. They were incensed. They were, when I say livid, they went up, because now at this point I've made my selections. And so I I went up, because now that this has happened, obviously I need a backup in the future, right? So I... I'm approaching the counter, and I can hear, like, multiple people really going in on this cashier, and it's not appropriate to play gospel music in a sex shop. And I mean, they're just like... And so what it did is it gave me an opportunity. I always say, when I am working with anyone, I need you to make a decision for yourself. You will not make me responsible for your life. As we go through this process of unfoldment, ask yourself, is this my truth? Because what's going to happen, especially when you have conferences like these, you're going to have a lot of people who have been doing this for a while. We're going to get up and we're going to lay it out in a way and you're going to be pumped up. But I can't do the buy-in like that. I have to ask myself, does that speak to my spirit? And so when they were going in, I paused. And I asked myself, do I feel the way they feel? And the answer was no. Because the beauty of going through this process and having a spirit of my own understanding is I want spirit to be every place in my life. And because I no longer behave like a a foul-mouthed broad and I now know how to conduct myself as a lady, 
any relationship I have, anything I do in the privacy of my own space is nothing I would be ashamed to have spirit present for. Spirit wants me to be relaxed. (laughs) And that was, it wasn't just an aha moment, it was a powerful moment when you come from the life I have lived. I had so much shame around the things I like. And when I started dating, I didn't know if I could really tell my partners all the stuff I liked because it was associated with the things I used to do in my business, if you understand. And so I had to reconcile that information. So when I go to the store so that I can relax, I don't care what they play because spirit is with me too. And spirit's like, I like that song. I'm so grateful that I'm not broken, and I'm so grateful that I have a spirit of my own understanding, and we can go wherever it is, and we can do whatever we need to do. Thank you. Oh, it's got to come down just a tiny bit more. I'm Mary, and I'm an alcoholic. It's great to be here and great to be a part of this. Um, my sobriety date is November 11th, 1989, and um, I'm going to do the morning with you. I'm super excited and ready to throw up, too, at the same time. But, um, I have two specific stories. I don't know if I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do, because they're just on my heart. And number one is um, the Great Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, my father was a World War II veteran, and um, he... We took a trip to Pearl Harbor um, shortly after I left a husband quite like Mildred's, and um, and there was restraining orders, and it was it was really really a hard time in my life. But my father had always wanted to go back to Pearl Harbor. He had this in his heart forever, and my father was an alcoholic, and he drank to the day he died. And so we plan this trip. He packs a little bag. We go to the liquor store first. And just like they used to do in the old days, he opens the glove box and puts the whiskey on the, on the glove box. That's what we used to do in the old day, right? And so this whole trip was, um, was me and my father and 3,000 miles away from Bellingham, Washington. And we get to the hotel. And I'm 14 years sober at the time. And... Um, And we're going up the escalator, and it was wet in the lobby. And I was ahead of him. And he's 85, and he he fell right behind me and cracked his head right there. And and I'm by myself. I'm newly leaving my husband. I mean, I've got this relationship with God, because much like you ladies, you'll hear a bunch about that tomorrow morning. But I'm alone, and I'm in Oahu. And I'm with my father, and I'm scared. I'm petrified. And he's stubborn, and he's alcoholic, and he's like, the you know, ER comes, and I'm not going to the hospital. I'm not going to get treated. I'm going to do it when I get home. And he was stubborn, and I'm calling my friends. I'm waiting, you know, I'm kind of, you know, my AA is not real strong, you know, double digits and crazy. And, um, and my calls back home to my supports were just get to a meeting, just get to a meeting, get to a meeting. I'm going to have to leave him in the hotel alone, get to a meeting, buy him his whiskey. It took five pints of whiskey the five days we were there, and he drank it every day. 
But what I did is I went to this meeting called Happy Hour, and it was under a banyan tree, and it was at 5.30 every day. And I went to that meeting, and my AAs held me through that. But what happened, too, was the last day before we were going to come home. See, my dad paid for the trip, and everything was cash. He was old school. And I went to the banyan tree, and I took my handbag, and I stuck it in the trunk of the car. Not a good idea, but I'm from Bellingham, Washington. I didn't think about that. But I did have my cell phone, and I did have my keys, and I went to the meeting, and I had met a couple people there. They had given me their phone numbers, and um, I went back to the car after the meeting, and somebody had broken into the car and stole my handbag out of the car, and everything we had was gone. Our airline tickets are gone. You know, um, the money's gone. And I don't even know what beach I'm at. Like, I can't even locate where I'm at. So I'm going to call a cop and tell him what. But there was this man named Bob. If anybody knows Bob. Whatever. He gave me his card and I said, called him up. I said, Bob, I just got robbed, you know. And those people rallied around me and they, you know, got me to the, what do they call it? You know, the city. They help travelers, the bureau or whatever. They they got me there. They got me to the airport. They gave us cash to get in the rent-a-car to get home. Well, this time I'm without a sponsor, and we had been stuck in Polly. And I got home from that meeting. I go to the women's meeting on Wednesday night, and me and my friend Bridget had been trying to find Polly, and we had laid bets. You know, who's going to find her first? I look up at my Wednesday night meeting. They had been talking about the fellowship. You're going to meet these people, you know, in your hometown. And I'm sharing that story. And Bridget's sitting across the table from Polly. And Bridget goes, I won, like this. And and the whole meeting, I'm going, I just got to get to her. You know, i got to get to her. And people are coming up to me, and so, and then I get this tap on the shoulder, and I turned around, and it was Polly. So a defining moment of meeting her, and I just wanted to honor you in that. And I hope I have a couple more minutes. Okay, so the other one is this. Fast forward, I've got a band. I've got the drunk keyboard player, cheater boy, picking all the wrong guys, and, and, um, my my little home group, Polly was trying to get me away from my home group, Northwest Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We were funky. You know, we were. We were crazy. We were a clubhouse. But, you know, it was my home group for 20 years. And um, and this homeless guy that was going to the Lighthouse Mission, which is probably like the Midnight Mission, um, was looking at this guy online, and he says, well, I think we should bring Peter M. for our uh, anniversary. And I'm the speaker coordinator for the group. Oh, yeah, let's bring him in, you know. And um, that morning, I was doing a bike ride. I wasn't even going to go to this stupid thing because I just thought he was living in Jersey at the time and I was, you know, contempt prior to investigation. I listened to a little bit of one of his tapes and I was like, yeah, bring the fat guy from Jersey, you know. And, and, in the, and so what happened was that morning, I'm riding with my sister who had been, we were on a bike ride, 10-mile bike ride for the American Cancer Society, and I'm crying the whole bike ride. And she's married, and she's married a long time. And I'm like, when am I ever going to get that, you know? You know, and, and just just crying the whole bike ride. And um, so what happens is, I'm just all grubbed out. I come back from the bike ride. I'm all hippied out. I've got a Henley. I've got Uggs on. And I'm just no makeup. And I was going to this stupid potluck these AAs were having. And, and I walk in the door, and here's this guy. 
And why this is important, this isn't, you know, just to me it is, because it's rocketed my life. And, um, and, and I was like, whoa, so we spend the afternoon together at this potluck, it's pretty cool. But um, that night I had a gig, and I called my band, and I'm like, because I wasn't even going to go to the talk that night, I'm like, damn, I'm going, you know? And so I went home, I got prettied up, I went to the talk that night, and I... Um, and I met the man that I'm with now, a man that treats me with grace and dignity. And not only that, to be here at Girlstock, you know, the, the, the world that I did not know, like who is it that talks about inches and seconds, if I wouldn't have been at that potluck, if I wouldn't have said, if I wouldn't have said yes, you know, all these moments that AA just picks us up and, and takes, I mean, I'm a Girlstock backstage pass girl you know I came here the first year and I sat in the back row and I didn't belong and tonight I'm standing up here and for that I'm grateful so thank you so much thank you panel for a wonderful meeting we'll close with the Lord's Prayer Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.